Amen. You can be seated. I bet you're happy about that. I know I was looking to want to sit down. These old hips were tired. For the text of this Good Friday service, as Pastor Alex mentioned, we'll, we'll go from Psalm 22, so take your Bible, turn to Psalm 22, and, and once you get there, then please hold your spot there, turn to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read a section from Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 closely parallels Matthew chapter 22. And as Pastor Alex gave the instruction as we moved through the reading of the text of Psalm 22, and as we moved through the reading of Isaiah chapter 53, I want all of us to kind of draw our attention to the words of Matthew, and then subsequent, the words that we look at in Psalm 22, as we consider the dread and the judgment that Jesus bore for us. We do well to consider these, and so please listen to them closely and consider them uh, in your mind and heart as we move through Uh, this homily from Psalm 22. Look with me at verse 35 of Matthew 27. The Bible says this, And when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Him there, and over His head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, the one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, 
and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice, and he yielded up the Spirit. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this Good Friday service, we do thank You for Jesus. We do thank You for His cross. It is through who Jesus is and what Jesus did that we, the church, set here redeemed. Redeemed for eternity from all of our sin. And yet, Lord, as we move through this psalm this evening, perhaps some that are in the room or watching via the internet might find themselves in this season just to be curious about the cross. We would pray and ask them, Lord, ask of you, I should say, that you would reveal to them in their minds their understanding of the gospel. Lord, for those who are perhaps in this room that are, that are doubters, they have heard the gospel for a season and they find themselves in doubt. We pray that you would convince them of the truth. Lord, for those who set, who reluctantly came for whatever reason, but their hearts are hardened in rejection, we pray you would break through their callousness and their indifference towards the gospel, and that you would save them even this very night. For your people, the church, that have rejoiced in the work of the cross, Lord, help us to look at the cross and consider our sin. For it truly is why our beloved hanged on the tree. Bless us, Lord, and strengthen us. Help us to hate our sin and rejoice in the truth of the gospel. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we go back to Psalm chapter 22, this psalm would have been basically written about a thousand years before the time when Jesus would go to the cross. Um, David, in this psalm, as Pastor Alex read from the psalm, we know this was a psalm of David, had felt forsaken by God. He is surrounded by scornful enemies, as he describes. He's under a tremendous amount of personal suffering, and he feels this desperate struggle with death. And he prays for God's deliverance. And there's really not any known incident in David's life that details this psalm. But we know that David, for about four years, was chased by Paul, or Saul. Saul was in pursuit of him to kill him. And more than likely, this is what he's describing, this pursuit that Saul had over him. There's no confession of sin that's mentioned in the psalm. 
even the superscription, which is at the beginning uh, that Pastor Alex read from, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, the, the doe of the dawn really, in poetic language, represented uh, a picture of innocence. As you would look at a, a baby fawn early in the morning. There's no imprecatory prayer that's prayed here by David against his enemies. And so I think part of what we want to understand before we dip into this passage is, is that David is using poetic language. He's using poetic language, which can go several ways in, in, in different types depending on the passage that you're dealing with. You're usually talking about something unusual or the, or the basic structure of it. But ultimately, I think in, as in this passage, we're talking about elevated language. The author, David, here to this, is trying to develop for us a very strong image so that we can catch uh, what's taken place. He's, he's telling us what he's feeling in his soul, in his mind. If we were to break down Psalm 22, uh, we would look at it like this. The first 21 verses are, are talking about David agonizing in prayer and then after agonizing in prayer, he turns his attention to adoringly praise Yahweh. So that's how the breakdown of this psalm would go, agonizing prayer and then adoring praise. Now we're not going to go through all of that. Um, I think for the Good Friday service, I'm just going to take us through some, some of the cycles that are mentioned in the agonizing prayer. And there are three cycles that are mentioned here in the text from Psalm 22. And here's how this goes. It goes agony in the first two verses to trust in verses 3 through 5. Going back to agony in verses 6 and 7, which would be the second cycle, to trust in verses 8 through 11. And then in a larger extent, Agony is mentioned by David in verses 12 through 18, and then trust in verses 19 through 20. So there's, there's three cycles. After that, of course, he moves into an adoring praise, and it's a wonderful praise. It's certainly worthy of going through. Um, there's basically five implications that are given there over Christ's death, um, but I'm going to save that. We're going to look tonight more just to the focus of his agonizing prayer. This poetic language that David uses here is really more literally true description of what took place with Jesus. Through the readings that we just read and through the reading that I just gave you from Matthew chapter 27. If we were to look at all of the gospel accounts, all of the gospel accounts will give varied angles to this. And as I mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 27 is the most closely aligned. It, it's not like it includes everything, and it's obviously good to go through all of the descriptions of the cross. But what I want to focus on tonight is Psalm chapter 22. Usually when we, we think of the death of Jesus, 
we think about his physical suffering, and we know that his, his physical suffering was immense. And while David will mention which this psalm, which is really about Jesus, about aspects of that physical suffering, the focus here is really on Jesus' emotional agony. Jesus endured an unbelievable amount of rejection and contempt as he, as he goes to the cross. When we get to Psalm chapter 22, in, our, in the English version, of which would be, My God, My God, Jesus at this point has been on the cross for three hours. He will be on the cross, as I read from um, Matthew chapter uh, 27, another three hours. So there's a total accumulation of six, six hours. Psalm chapter 22 focuses on the, the last three hours. But to kind of catch us up at this point, we do want to take some consideration of where Jesus would have been at at this point on the cross. On the cross, He would have been impossible to see and recognize who He actually was. Jesus would have endured, we know, the whipping of 39 lashes, which would have been a long whip filled with glass and sharp edge, which most doctors, having examined the cross, would have said his back, Jesus' back would have looked like raw hamburger. Literally, you could have been able to put your hands into his back and grab portions of his organ. He would have been, of course, the nails in his hands and his feet and the crown of thorns and all of the beatings that he took along the way, you would not have been able to recognize him. And so the picture of the cross is one of excruciating pain. It's, it's very difficult, I would say, on our part to comprehend. Pictures never do it any kind of justice that the, that the Word of God gives. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God cannot look upon sin or He cannot look upon evil. I think when, when you see this section, as we'll get into this at the beginning place, this is a part of the cross that is very difficult for us to comprehend. But it's very good for us to consider. The emotional agony of the separation of the Father with the Son at the cross was immense. And Jesus, of course, bearing this, being fully human, obviously and fully God, feels that break. Many believe that Jesus probably quoted the entire chapter of Psalm 22. Jesus, who is sinless, as we think about this, became sin, so that we, in Him, might become the righteousness of God. The last three hours from my God, my God, in verse 1, down to verse 31, that He has done it, are, I really believe, probably the most intense moment in human history. 
Darkness, we know from Matthew's Gospel, has covered the earth. The whole earth goes dark from 12 to 3. It's as if creation itself is ashamed because its Creator is dying. The women who have followed Jesus' ministry along with His mother, who have supported Jesus' ministry financially, in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible tells us this, they are in, they're in deep mourning. They're weeping and they're sorrowful. The disciples, the original disciples who had spent you know, three years with Him, basically every day, are scattered. They're depressed. They're devastated. Seemingly, everything that they have given life, their lives to has gone awry. His enemies, enemies here, as we'll get into the text, they are taking a form of wicked pleasure that is hard to comprehend. Hell is clearly howling and the Son of God is dying. When Jesus says the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Charles Haddon Spurden calls the 22nd Psalm the Psalm of the Cross. When Jesus utters these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a startling, bitter cry. Jesus is agonizing in grief. He is the suffering Son of God and He can't find any relief. While he's upon the cross. And yet, don't get this expression wrong. When he cries out, my God, my God, there's no mistrust on the son's part. He doesn't mistrust his father. He knows his father is faithful. He knows his father's power. He also understands that this is his father's clear plan for the redemption of man. And Jesus was fixed that he would one day be on Golgotha's hill. God's full wrath of sin, I believe, is being poured out here. And certainly Jesus was suffering for, for sin, for the sake of sin, in those hours, the beatings, and the first three hours of the cross. And yet this begins to get more intense as the earth grows dark, which is really a symbolic that the world is hid in spiritual darkness. As Jesus bears the full wrath of sin, notice with me at verse 2, He says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but, do not but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Jesus finds no rest so that you and I could sit here tonight and rest in the Gospel. He is our substitute dying in our place. Let's jump to the second cycle that's mentioned in verse 6. Verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. He delights in Him. 
Jesus says, I'm a man, or I am a worm. What a humbling statement. The Creator, the great I am, our Lord, says, I am a worm. It's an expression that Jesus is letting know in this place, He's lower than angels. He's, he's lower than men. Jesus literally is being trampled upon. He is pouring out His life, body and soul, being fully man. He is one mass of misery. The very essence of agony is found here in Jesus, our sin bearer. His only strength that He has left in Him is to just endure the suffering He's under. Verse 7, the text says, All who see Me mock Me. They make mouths at Me. They wag their heads. We looked at this just at Matthew's Gospel. This mocking is described in the New Testament as cruel mockings. They were a scornful ridicule. And what's set before us is an unholy host. There's a group that is here that is scoffing Jesus. It really is shocking when you read the Gospels or you read Psalm 22. I would say that all of us would ask ourselves, what's greater? The pure evil and cruelty of man or the pure love of a bleeding Savior. We jump into the third cycle that the psalmist gives us here in verse 12 through 18. It says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their, their mouths at me, and like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And you, and, and you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus' enemies have gathered at the cross. It begins with a description of, of the bulls, the many bulls the strong bulls of Bashan. Now, what this would have represented, we saw in Matthew chapter 27. First of all, Bashan was the most fertile area for grazing for bulls. And so all of the strong bulls that were in that area, and this would have been basically in the location of eastern Palestine, or what we would call Syria today, that's where the strongest bull came from because those bulls, because it was the most fertile ground. 
The psalmist, as he describes here, and as we look, these many bulls, these, these bulls represent a type of power and strength. It certainly would have represented the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the rulers. They were the ones with all of the power. They were the ones that got organized to execute Jesus, though they had heard from an eyewitness that Jesus had raised Lazarus from, their de- from the dead. The brutality here is stunning. Jesus is helpless. Jesus is being entirely humiliated. The glut of wickedness is unreal almost. And yet, verse 14 tells us of Jesus' personal condition. He's poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Jesus is describing to us His personal condition. He's entirely poured out. He has emptied Himself, body and soul. When we sing that Jesus gave it all, He literally gave it all. He had nothing left to give. All along, some 2,000 later, two years later for us, He's bearing our sin. Our collective sin and the collective sin of all the redeemed in any word, thought, or deed, Jesus is perishing over. He's dying. He's taking our sin. He's taking our shame. He's taking our guilt. Verse 15 tells us that his strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaw. They have laid me in the dust of death. Jesus is at the point of death. He has no strength left in him. That is, there's no capacity to resist. He is laying down his life. Of course, we know that's Humanly speaking, he's, he's suffering. He's dying. This was, of course, the plan of God. We go to another group that's before the cross. They're listed in verse 16. He says, for dogs encompass me. So we've looked at uh, the bulls. Obviously, we know there's a strength in in the lions that were mentioned. We'll mention something about that in just a minute here. The dogs would have basically represented those of lesser power. There were many people that were around the cross that were uh, mocking Jesus. They encompassed Him. That is, along the way, they had encircled Him like vicious dogs. They are for us the fickle crowd. Just a few days ago, they're crying out Hosanna, and now they're barking to crucify Him. As Jesus is bearing the sin, our sin. Scripture says in verse 16 about His, look at this with me, It says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, they have pierced my my hands and my feet. 
Now, obviously, that's a reference to the cross of the Lord's nails in his hands and his feet. Some say like a lion at his hands and feet. That is some Hebrew manuscripts. So you have the wicked crowd who have great deal of power. You have the lesser of the area, those who would be poor or less significant into the world. They're bombarding him with a vicious way. But of course we know that the motivation of Satan is there. Satan wants our Lord dead. Needlessly to say, he didn't know what he was asking for. This whole unholy host is here. They represent, we know, back to the garden. They are the seed of the serpent. The furious bulls, the hungry lions, the vicious dogs, the harmless Lamb of God who is the seed of the woman. I want to pause here for just a moment. You think of people who sin in a great deal or people who sin small. You know, there's no sin too great or small. Nothing has stained your life that the blood of Jesus Christ can't cleanse. Even some who represent that crowd. Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. We know he, got, he was redeemed. And other people who were a part of the Sanhedrin, they were the people in power. We know when we read in Matthew's Gospel that one of the thieves on the cross, he was a mere robber, an outcast in society. He comes to Christ. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I've sinned too great. There's no stain that God can't forgive if you'll come to Jesus. The stare and the gloat persist here in verse 17 as the soldiers cast lots. It's this, this wicked voyeurism is, is stunning. They're gambling over the garments of Jesus. He shed His blood to cleanse us. He gave us His garments to clothe us. Jesus in our place. Jesus, according to verse 31, having suffered our hell, God's full wrath poured out between, of course, for six hours, but as we've looked at here, from noon to three, jump down to verse 31. This is so beautiful. At the, verse 31 says, And they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. Man, that's us. That what? That He has done it. It's the Hebrew word asa, which means this, it is done. It is complete. It is finished. It's, Basically, the comparative word from the Hebrew to the Greek word to telestai in John chapter 19, verse 30, that when Jesus, having breathed his last, said, It is finished. My work is done. It is now complete. And its effect will last for all eternity. Jesus conquered death by death. Jesus' death 
means the church will never see the second death. Jesus died to save sinners. The cross of Christ to us is a great paradox. It's the most tragic event in history. And yet it's the most wonderful event in history. The darkest hour, or three hours I should say, that this world ever known, came the greatest light. At the cross of Jesus converges God's holiness, God's justice, and God's wrath over and against God's mercy, God's compassion, and God's love. The gospel beckons us. The gospel gives us an assurance that only it can give. It's found in probably the very first verse that you ever learn. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now as I wrap this up, I think there's some things that all of us kind of want to consider. I think this is a question that you should ask yourself in light of the cross. Is what do I got to do? What will gain me favor with God? And the Bible is clear that the only response of human responsibility that, that people have before the gospel is to repent and to believe. We all must repent and believe. And that will be the singular most important accountability on the day that all of us stand individually before the God, before our God in the judgment. What have I done with Jesus in light of his death? Will you repent and will you believe? Well, what's repentance? Well, as you're coming to Jesus and as, as you come into the family of God, repentance is this. Repentance is to acknowledge that, that God is holy and that you are not just a person who has sinned, but you are a sinner. You're a sinner through and through. And that the only way that you can be accepted of God is to acknowledge that God is holy and that you are a sinner and that you have this desperate need for the forgiveness of your sin. In that place, the heart and mind turns to apprehend God's mercy. And God's mercy is only found in the person and the work of Jesus. And there are three things that really accompany genuine belief. You must repent. You must believe. Belief takes three things. Belief begins with knowledge. Okay? So, so God doesn't save by osmosis or some esoteric knowledge. It's plain. It's, it's easy to understand once explained. That is, I must have the knowledge that, that I'm a sinner and that God is holy and that Jesus alone is the only one that is saved. Those are the components 
or the facts of the gospel. You must have the knowledge of the gospel to become a Christian. But it doesn't end there. With those statements which come from Scripture that talk about the truth of who God is and who you are and what Christ did, not only must you have a knowledge of that, but you must assent in your inner man that those things are true. They're accurate. And I can honestly tell you, as one who was raised in a Christian home, there was never a time in my life that I didn't have knowledge and assent being raised in Christianity from an early age. I never recall a time in my life where I doubted that, you know, up to the veracity of who Jesus is and who God is and really what, what I was. But knowledge and assent, which are completely necessary, still don't come alone to belief. You must trust. That is in all your sinfulness, in all of God's holiness, in all your view of, of the cross, in recognition of your sin, you must apprehend God's mercy in Jesus and trust in Him alone and nothing else to save you. And the promise of the gospel is this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. Church, it's Friday now, but Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your wonderful Word. We would never presume, Lord, to have our own genius to describe any of the events, the truthful events of Scripture. Jesus was born in time in history. Jesus lived a full life as a man for 33 years. Jesus suffered and died a literal death to save sinners. Jesus rose again from the dead so that we who believe in Him would be justified unto life. So once again, as we, as we close this service and as we go to the time where we will dine at the table once again, we thank You for Jesus' bodily sacrifice. We thank You for Jesus' shed blood. We thank You that Jesus endured this emotional agony which is so hard for us to comprehend. Jesus, You truly paid it all and we give You thanks. We give You thanks and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may rise.